Welcome to episode 9 of the Beyond the Lectern podcast. I'm Jason Lodge. And I'm Rachel Searston. In this episode, we talk to Dr. Ryan Naylor. Ryan is the core first year coordinator for health sciences at La Trobe University. We chatted to Ryan about equity and inclusion. Uh, it was a very enlightening conversation, and so I hope you enjoy it. Ryan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. So we're talking about equity today and equity issues in higher education. So can you give us a bit of a sense about how you got involved in this area? What sort of piqued your interest and and got you started on this work? Well, accidentally, mostly. So I'm actually a biochemist by training and then left that because I couldn't stand working in a biochemistry lab anymore. Came to work at the CSAG at the University of Melbourne. And basically, one of the first things that I was, when I was here, was they urgently needed someone who understood stats to come and do some work um, with a quick turnaround in the social equity, you know, social inclusion area. So um, I started as a kind of as a necessity, and then found it was just a really fascinating and I think worthy area. So I just kind of fell into it and then fell in love with it in a way. I'm sure most people might share the view of the very coarse grain view of the history of higher education in Australia of, you know, it once was free, now it's not. And, <laughs> you know, all of the, the implications that has in terms of equity and, and social inclusion. Can you elaborate a little bit more about the lumps and bumps in terms of um, equity and social inclusion in Australian higher education context over, over history, mm. but also in comparison to the international context? All right, well, particularly compared to, say, the European or the US model, uh, Australian higher education has been relatively um, inclusive and um, flat for quite a long time, but particularly around the 60s and 70s when so- kind of social, social justice and social inclusion became a more widespread social conversation, um, that's when it really began to pick up. And then the major changes have been over the last, say, 10 years since the Bradley Review of Higher Education, when the Bradley Review put social equity front and centre and the government um, put funding behind it as well. So certainly social inclusion didn't start with the Bradley Review, but an enormous amount of work has been done since then. So I guess in the broader scheme of things, we're talking about this this idea that once upon a time university was for the elite and now we're moving to these mass sort of, yeah. you know, an idea of universal higher education. Um, although we're still a ways off universal, I guess. <laughs> um, so as we go through that, what are sort of the main kind of issues that we see in terms of inclusion and diversity, both in terms of getting into university and then the sorts of struggles that different people from different backgrounds might have once they get here? What, what are the sort of main main areas in which we see issues pop up? Right. Well, so they're divided broadly into issues around access, um, issues around participation and then issues around completion and there's kind of a a smaller area which I I think is probably understudied at the moment about what happens after you leave university because it's all very well and good if you can get your bachelor's degree or whatever it is but then if you're unemployable at the end of that then no one's agenda has been served by that. So there's the area of um, issues around access to higher education and a lot of the focus there is on academic preparation which obviously involves schools and uh, what happens at schools. Now, of course, not all university students are school leavers, so there's all kinds of outreach to adult communities as well. But in Australia particularly, most people are still school leavers, and so the focus is on outreach to schools 
and getting people aware of university as an option for them. Um, now, it's kind of, as a side point here, part of the conversation is sometimes about raising aspirations for university. I think this is an absolutely abhorrent expression. And if I achieve only one thing in my career, it's driving that out um, of the discussion. Because people, kids, but people, um, have very realistic understandings of what their options are, but that doesn't mean they have low aspirations. So if you go to a group of year eights and say, what do you want to be when you grow up? Then regardless of background, then they'll have the same kind of desires or the same range of desires. But in that period between say um, year eight and year 12, they are taught that some people have a wider range of options that are realistically available than others. And so part of what university outreach to address these access issues are, is to make sure that that window doesn't narrow further than it needs to. What are some of the equity groups that we're talking about here that are having, that are having trouble getting into university? So there's low SES students with low socioeconomic status. Uh, so that's basically people from typically economically underprivileged backgrounds, or at least you know below average. So their resources at home plays a part here, um, but also the resourcing of schools play a part here. So in Australia, there's been a long and ongoing debate about the Gonski model of funding in schools and a more, because the OECD data is that Australia has one of the most stratified education systems of any country in the OECD. So by fixing some of that inequalities in the school system, we would go a long way to fixing inequalities in the higher education system, because obviously one is predicated on the other. Uh, so that's one group. For a long time, women in non-traditional areas, which fundamentally means IT and engineering, has been an area of focus, but that is dropping away now. Indigenous students is a big issue. Uh, they're a relatively small group, but because they, they often have overlapping features with low SES students, many of them are from regional and rural backgrounds, which is another group. And they also face exclusive environments up to and including sometimes outright racism, which makes it much harder to sustain their position in university. So they're a particularly sensitive group. Then non-English speaking background is another group. Um, so you can see on oh, students with a disability. Um, so you can see that as a group, they're all people that either face kind of structural issues about being able to complete their degree, uh, which is might be economic or it might be you know, in the case of students with disabilities, more fundamental structural issues, or who um, otherwise may not come into university as academically prepared as students from more traditional backgrounds. I suppose one of the things you can pull out there is that there are multiple different ways in which you can measure, you know, the impact of interventions that are trying to improve mm, absolutely. Um, social inclusion because you, you mentioned access so you would want it there to see an increase in the number of enrollments from these equity groups yes but then you also mentioned you know retaining students yeah so they, they graduate you know yeah. at the end of the day yeah. so what kind of measures do you, are, are common in this space so we measure them fundamentally as group access rates or group um, success rates or retention rates or completion rates um now, the interesting thing is, once we've got them into university, by and large, most people from most of these groups will have the same kind of experience and success as people from traditional backgrounds. Um, but there is still a difference in the completion rate at the end of that. 
So it's in some ways it's hard to understand or to tease apart why it might be that you know student A comes from background A and student B comes from background B and student A and B will get the same results all the way through but student B is still much more likely to drop out. And so partly it's because you know students sit in a web of relationships and only some of those are with the university. So with all of the other demands on their time, um, financial, family, all of those other things, health, um, it becomes more difficult for some of these students to complete their degrees than others. And particularly if you are from one of these backgrounds where there might be kind of a, a nagging question about whether you are able to complete the degree or whether you belong at university, whether you're, whether you're the type of person that should be there, then if you have a setback, then you're much more likely to throw up your hands and say, all right, well, this is it, I'm done. Whereas for student A, you say, all right, well, I had a setback, but I'm going to come back in three years' time. So to some extent, once they've got into university, which is, again, a separate argument from the access issues, but keeping them here um, is as much about re-recruitment when they have personal problems and need to take a break from study as it is about you know, success in the classroom. I guess one of the challenges that I've always found with this area is that because I tend to think about all of these things from a very sort of strong learning sciences perspective, we, all, we often come at uh, what we're doing in, in higher education from the perspective of saying, oh, right, so all humans kind of learn like this. Mm. Therefore, we should think about what we're doing in, in the following ways. And that's why I think that there's a sort of mismatch between the way that I've tended to think about learning and what we do in higher ed and the sorts of issues that you're talking about. Um, so that's always been a challenging thing for me, and I can't quite get my head around where the levers are that we can actually do anything about it. I mean, is this is this predominantly a policy issue? Is this something that institutions need to think about? Is it um, something that you can do something about in an individual class as an academic who's got a subject to teach or whatever? Is it a combination of those things? Um, what, what's your sense of that from somebody who doesn't quite get how all of these pieces fit together? What does it look like from your perspective? I was going to say the answer is yes to all of those. <laughs> right. <laughs> done. We're done here. Done. Um, so there is definitely the need for um, a policy focus in this area. So... Um, as I said, the Bradley Review has really kicked this off over the last 10 years. And with successive changes in government and changes around the higher education policy, um, some of those, some of that focus has lapsed. And some of those equity groups I talked about earlier have kind of dropped off. As I said, um, women in non-traditional areas is no longer something we focus on. So a policy focus, and particularly when backed up with funding, really does... Um, target people's attention and can really reap benefits. At an institutional level, a lot of the problems are about kind of structural inequalities. So it's the way the university is set up to exclude or include people from particular backgrounds or particular types of people, or even just, you know, people, because I don't want to overemphasize the fact that people are members of groups and that's a monolithic group, because there are a huge amount of individual variation here as well. But so as a kind of corporate culture aspect, uh, that can go a long way as well. But for the individual academics running classrooms, or for that matter, for the students sitting in the classrooms, then there's still a lot of stuff that can be done independently of all of those other things. And it may be considering within kind of the bounds of your discipline, because some are more 
some of them have more potential in this area than others um, of how to have inclusive content. But then there's also ways to make the classroom rather than the content a more inclusive place. And then finally, there's the sorts of things where you acknowledge that students have lives outside of the classroom, uh, but that the classroom and the academic are the face of the university that these students encounter. Because we, we know from a lot of research that students' perceptions of that personal interaction really fundamentally shapes their experience of the university as a whole. So it can be a simple matter of saying, as the as a lecturer in your subject, I understand lots of you have got work on in other things. So if you find that you're struggling a bit, we've got counselling services, we've got financial support, all of these sorts of things to acknowledge that students potentially have this burden and making them aware of the supports that already exist. Because there's a, a large number of people, uh, particularly those who would benefit most from support services, either aren't aware that they're there or don't use them. As a young undergraduate, I was certainly heartened by all the, the LGBTI um, ally badges on professors' doors and things like that. But one, one of the things that you made me think about and, and also just kind of reading some of your work is how do you measure the success of these sorts of things? I mean, it seems like such a, a difficult thing to test. So measuring the impact of one model of improving social mm. inclusion versus another and then using that information to inform policy so developing an evidence base that that can help inform policy decisions on these sorts of things um, but do you have a hunch or uh, do you know of any work that is pointing at things that are potentially quite impactful i'm glad you brought this up because there's an opportunity to cite my research um, <laughs> <laughs> so evaluation of these areas is a perennially thorny issue it is really difficult to get at success factors here um, and the federal government is, cons is constantly pushing to try to get better and better evaluation of evidence. So there is more focus on this now than there probably has been in the past. But one of the first pieces of work that I did was working out a critical interventions framework, and then, which is kind of a, a typology of uh, different types of interactions and um, interventions that we can do. And then talking about the evidence that we had of what would be successful or what was likely to work. And then we followed that up with colleagues from the University of Newcastle, maybe four years later, and found that even in just that period, having the focus had made so many more evaluation studies be, you know, be published and available in the literature for people to draw on. So there is work out there, so people don't need to reinvent the wheel constantly, and we're getting better and better understandings of what it is. We're moving away from the like, traditional things of, did you enjoy this? Did it make you feel good? to actual outcomes like, did this student stay involved with the university? Um, did they pass more subjects? That kind of thing. So the main thing about evaluation is that it needs to be um, centred on the stakeholders, and that includes all the different stakeholders in the area, including the students themselves, obviously. It needs to be iteratively developed because evaluation strategies are never perfect the first time. It needs to be informed by the research, as I've already said, and it needs to be sensitive to the context. So um, if you're doing a particular program to reach low SES students, then that same thing may not be working anywhere near as effectively with a different group, students with disabilities, say. Or if you take something here at the University of Melbourne, then it may not work in the same way at La Trobe University or at La Trobe University's Bendigo campus in the regions. 
So it needs to be, the, the context is just absolutely important here. And that is another complicating factor, but also one that offers a lot of rich research opportunities. Which, which is a nice lead into to something that I think is really interesting that you've talked about in some of the work that, that you've done that I've read. And you say that there's quite a, a, a difference in how different institutions kind of set these programs up and, and go about mm. um, what they do to address some of these issues. It seems like there might be a difference in philosophy or, you know, is, is that the kind of thing that you're seeing here? What are the sort of the main differences between institutions in how they might go about trying to address access and equity issues? So there's uh, this comes back to institutional culture in a lot of ways. And there's some, some work that I published quite recently, uh, which is talking about institutional variations using a measure of workload stress. So this is how students feel about their ability to do the work that's been set for them. And to go back to what we were talking about earlier with the academic, then you know, that's obviously an area where for obvious support and interaction. But some institutions have a kind of sink or swim survival of the fittest approach. And that obviously is more likely to lead to workload stress than it is to others. Whereas others have a kind of a whole of institution support approach. And those ones are the ones where the support systems are properly integrated with the classroom and students know where to go for help and that kind of thing. So everyone is on board and pursuing the same kind of inclusive agenda. And the difference between those institutions, so say you take a regional university of a particular size with survival of the fittest approach and a a regional university with a social inclusion approach. Um, So they're otherwise pretty much the same, but the culture is different. Then that can result in fundamentally different measures of workload stress. And that translates into attrition rates. So, you know, it is a fundamental aspect of the conversation here. We've been focusing quite a bit on undergraduates, but I'm wondering whether or not, you know, some of the issues, I imagine they do, they change as you kind of move up or move into different areas of university life. So are there, are there similar issues? Are there different issues when we're, when we're talking about, say, early career academics or senior professors or administrators? Do you see the similar sort of things or do we need to think about this in a different way? Well, I'm perhaps not the right person to ask about this because most of my research is at the undergraduate level, but uh, absolutely is the short answer. Um, it, it does change, but the issues remain issues. So anyone who looks at the promotion prospects of women in university hierarchies, for example, can see that uh, they cluster around the lower academic levels or in kind of the less, less valuable work. Uh, whereas all of the, not all of, but the majority of, say, PVCs and above are or tend to be men. So it's clear, even at that kind of very superficial level, that there are factors that are excluding or making it difficult uh, for some people relative to others. And this has been another problem in Indigenous education because without the pipeline through school and then through the undergraduate and then through the postgraduate and then into junior academics and so on. So if an Indigenous student comes in and not one of the academics that they come in contact with is another Indigenous person, then I can't see how you wouldn't question whether this is the place for you and people like you. But without supporting all the way through that pipeline, then that's kind of an unsolvable issue. So the issues do remain, but because they are able, you know, people who get to a postgraduate level have already kind of proven themselves the undergraduate level. 
So they're already the ones who are most likely to survive the system. So the, the pipelines become narrower. The issues change slightly, but they remain important issues. So I'm, I'm sort of thinking back to when I first started teaching, which was longer ago than I want to admit. <laughs> um, and I, when I started teaching, I was at a regional university. We had a lot of uh, mature age students. We had a lot of Indigenous students. Um, and we had a lot of students from low socioeconomic backgrounds. So we're sort of hitting all of the sorts of areas yep. that you've been talking about. And when I think back now, because I was completely unprepared for what I was doing in my teaching, I think I really struggled with what, what, what do I actually do here? So there's, a, there's an element of this that I think is around, as an academic who has a subject to teach, what are the sorts of things that you need to be mindful of so that you're making sure that you're creating a curriculum that is inclusive of, of a diverse range of students? I mean, for, for example, is it about just being really explicitly clear about what the expectations are? Is there an element of this that's about, you know, assessment tasks? Is it about creating, you know, um, some more flexible kinds of learning activities? What do you think are the, the sort of key touch points that might make a big difference? Particularly... At, at first year or at areas of transition, so including transition into postgraduate, clear expectations are really important. And there's something that I don't think as a sector we're very good at explaining because if you, if you don't know what an argumentative essay is, but then you're asked to write an argumentative essay, and often that's within the first six weeks of first year now, then you get a bad mark back on that. It's the first you know, so a knockback at that first step and you go... That's it, I'm done. Um, You know, there's nothing left for me. So expectations are really important. Then there's, (laughs) to put it kind of crudely, there's the vibe of the class. So it's just making, and I I think this is a quality of just good teaching generally. So it's not just, inclusive teaching is generally just good teaching, but it's making sure that, uh, you know, the the discussion is a safe space, that no one is criticised for being wrong or that kind of thing. And then... As you move on in terms of curriculum design, it's the sorts of issues about flexibility, um, particularly dealing with outside issues, but being able to personalise things and that kind of thing as well. That, uh, you know, that, that's where I'd start. There's probably more than just that, but that would be a good beginning. Whenever we join a, a new institution or uh, hopefully on an ongoing basis, we all complete those online modules that probably become familiar with the policies and procedures of that particular university or institution in terms of equity and diversity and social inclusion. Uh, but beyond that, you know, keeping up to date with our, <laughs> with our on- online modules and training, I'm thinking about, you know, how, what, what more academics can do uh, to improve social inclusion. Look, I'm a strong believer in communities of practice um and collegial communities generally so no one expects you as an academic in the classroom to be an expert in much beyond what you know the content area that you're trying to teach but that doesn't mean that there aren't academics or others who are experts in an area that would be relevant to you so counseling service is an obvious one and a simple method can be just kind of an ongoing professional development thing where conversations are started between different areas of the university like that. Because often students are expected to deal with you, the academic, and with you, the counselling service or service provider, the counsellor, if you will. <laughs> but the academics don't interact with the counsellors. Mm. But a simple kind of stretching out of the hand so that the counselling service comes and talks at your departmental forum or something like that just once a year just to remind people that they're there and that they're an option for people to draw on, 
um, a it takes pressure off the academic because you don't have to be an expert in um, you know dealing with students breaking down in your office and that kind of thing. Unless you, unless you teach psychology, in which case that area that comes back <laughs> really grey. That's a really old, you know. <laughs> all right. So perhaps we'll phrase it as it gives you an opportunity to palm these people off to others. How about that? Um, but you know, it's just about creating those uh, relationships outside of the silo of your discipline or your area or whatever you happen to work in. Which I guess is a really useful way of thinking about how we're supporting students more broadly and 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 sort of it, it, palming off is one way of thinking about it. But the, <laughs> but the other way of thinking is that you know we we do have a job to support the students, but mm. that job has boundaries. Yeah, you know, for really good reasons. So. Yes. Um, I think that's a great approach for, for trying to better understand where those boundaries are because for me, you know, again, particularly teaching in psychology, it becomes a really tricky thing to know mm. where those boundaries are. And I imagine it would be the same for people in every other discipline, not knowing where that, that role of supporting students mm. kind of ends and where it becomes, you know, something to involve somebody else or a support service. Yeah, absolutely. You know, teaching always involves a pastoral care responsibility, but sometimes it's it's helpful to have someone else come in and explain where those boundaries might be. Have you seen particularly innovative curriculum design strategies though that can help social inclusion? You know, I you know, I can imagine, you know, having materials available in different formats is, is one way of making your materials kind of more accessible to groups who might not be able to come into university every day, for example. Do you have any examples of ways in which we can structure our courses? So we know that one of the the main factors in retention particularly is sense of belonging to an institution or to the discipline or, you know, a sense of belonging generally. And that means that fundamentally it comes down to personal relationships between the teaching staff and the students and between the students. Uh, now, I was talking to some first-year students the other day because I, I naively said something along the lines of, you know, we get you to work in groups so you can make friends. And they told me that they don't make friends with people in the group. And they intentionally don't do it because that's a professional environment and they need to have a professional relationship with the people in their group, which is a much more, to be honest, a much more sophisticated um, explanation than I was actually expecting. So, Which it, discipline were they in by? They were in health science. Oh, wow. I was expecting mm. business. Yeah, I was expecting business <laughs> yeah, too. But it just goes to show. Um, yeah, right. I have nothing to do with business students. <laughs> <laughs> so... The sense of belonging thing is not about getting students to make friends, but it is about a kind of a sense of identity of themselves as a student and as a member of the university. Um, and also the idea that there are they are surrounded by people who will be there to help them if they need it. So that may be as simple as having a friend who can share their lecture notes with you, assuming people still take lecture notes, um, <laughs> or that the academic will um, will notice if they're not there and follow up with them. So I think something relatively simple like intelligent agents, if you were going to go down the kind of learning analytics path, are really effective because it's really nice to have an email to say, hey, I saw you got 10% on, or I saw you're in the top 10% of the class on this task. Well done. You've obviously put in a lot of hard work. That's great. Or that we've noticed you haven't been in class for the last three weeks. Is everything okay? Because yeah. both of them, A, shows that people are watching. Um, hopefully, or algorithms are watching. Or, well, <laughs> so, all right, how about that? They give the appearance that people are watching. And also, therefore, it's about, you know, a sense of belonging that 
people care about you as a person and not about not as a as a bag of cash for the university or as a hindrance that's keeping you from your research as the academic i was actually going to ask you about the the learning analytics side of things because because i think that there's um there's there's some sort of interesting things that i think might play out here because i think if we look at the way that a lot of these sort of um, fairly crude kind of learning analytics interventions have been set up in the past it's sort of a mixture of here's your demographic details yep. you're not logging into the lms <laughs> therefore we feel like we need to make sure that you're okay and it seems to me that that could go really badly wrong given <laughs> given the complexity of the issues that we're talking about mm. here um i mean what's your sense of where this is going do, you, do you, i guess it's a, a sort of cost benefit thing is do you think that this is really going to make a difference if we've got that kind of crude level thing? Or are we looking for something that's a bit more sophisticated down the track? What's the... Oh, look, I absolutely think we need to be more sophisticated about it. So uh, a lot of the demographic stuff, when you think about it, is kind of insulting. So it's saying that you're Indigenous, so you're going to need extra help if you come here. Or you know, you're low SES, or you're a woman in engineering, so you're going to need extra help. And if you don't get that message very carefully correct, then it's a, a turn off for the student rather than a helpful support. So I think the demographic stuff is limited in both usefulness and probably longevity. Because as our technology improves, we can start analysing people as individuals and not as group members. So hopefully looking at students as group members will fade out. And then there's the other kind of behavioural stuff that you talked about. But behind that, there's a lot of contributing factors. And I think one of the things that's missing in a lot of the work that we do is looking at the effective stuff, as in affect, rather than the things that are effective. Um, <laughs> well, we'd like to think that it would be a bit of a... It would right? be nice, yes. So these can be as simple as when you log on to your LMS, it just asks you, you know, click on the smiley face, whether you're happy or sad, that kind of thing. And that's obviously a very crude example but as we get better at those sorts of things, first of all, affect is predictive for behavior. So it gives us an opportunity to intervene before things become really problematic. And I think it's, it requires more sophistication than the behavioral stuff, but I think it's got more potential than the behavioral stuff as well. Yeah. So, so I guess the other side of this is there's one side of it that's the, you know, the personalization and the, mm. um, being able to identify you know, no matter who it is, whether they're running into trouble or whatever. The other side, I guess, is the intervention piece of this. Yeah. And I always worry that it's going to end up like the Microsoft Clippy <laughs> thing, right? You look like you're failing. Can I help? Mm. You know, that, that, <laughs> you, you know what I mean? Like, so, yeah. so given the, again, given the complexity of the sorts of issues that we're talking about, what can we do about that? Because the, the intervention thing is always something that mm. I, I kind of struggle with. All right, we've got these complex issues. How do... What can a machine do? When do we then hand that off to a person? Like, what's the what's the balance of all of these things? Yes, it's because it's a complex issue, and the, the sorts of issues that come up can be extremely complex. So, at La Trobe University, we have a program called Succeed at La Trobe, where people are identified basically on behavioural points. You know, you failed this task or what, you haven't turned up to class, whatever. And then someone will ring that person in order to have a chat. So they don't say you've been listed. You've, you're on our red list. Um, <laughs> you're in trouble. Yes. Right. <laughs> Knuckle down. Um, but they do ring up and say, hey, look, we're ringing a whole heap of first years at the moment and just, you know, checking in with you, seeing how you're going, that kind of thing. So 
first of all, I mean, that's it's not untrue, but it's not presenting the whole situation. So it's it's not making the situation a problem unnecessarily. Mm. It's just giving them an opportunity to reach out. And some students don't appreciate that and will tell you. Um, but others are, in, in fact, the vast majority are really happy to have someone um, try to contact them, talk to them about that kind of thing. Particularly if they're suffering through something, then, you know, they're just glad to have someone show an interest. But the sorts of issues we've had are things like, you know, people living in their cars, which is far more, probably serious than I think people expected before we started doing these phone calls. You know, students are people and therefore they have the whole range of issues that anyone might expect. So, and I think that in that circumstance, you know, had they just got a clippy automatic response thing, then that student is is lost to the system. Um, they need some kind of personal outreach. So particularly if we're going to go look at it as a learning analytics issue, then some things can probably be done by intelligent agents or automatic processes and that kind of things, whereas some things will be uh, better or just fundamentally require a human at the other end of the line. Yeah, so I've always thought about that as being almost like a triage mm. kind of process yeah. where you might have the foundational kind of intervention strategy that's for everybody. And then as it kind of seems like it's more serious, then you're going to bring somebody who's got expertise yes. in that to to try and help, you know, work through the issues. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. I know academics aren't counsellors, but I wonder whether or not, maybe not academics, but whoever whoever students come into contact with when they're at university have some sort of expertise in identifying the people who might be at risk, you know, in those those sorts of cases mm. where, you know, clearly their paperclip might not be able to reach them, <laughs> but a, a human might. Do you mm. think there is expertise to be had in, in identifying those sorts of things? Absolutely, yes. So... An academic is probably the best person with the expertise to identify academic issues. And then the people identified there can potentially go off to somewhere else, you know, a data warehouse or wherever, um, where they can be cross-referenced and um, experts in other areas, like you're talking about, can identify other issues. And then people who are flagged twice get funneled into program A and people who are flagged once get funneled into a different support system. Um, and I, look, I'm not a learning analytics expert or anything like that, but I think that would be a relatively simple processing issue to sort out um, and would be one that would be really effective. Um, I want to wind back to something that you mentioned earlier. So one of the things I found interesting was when you talked about this idea that there are also kind of equity issues about what happens after graduation. Mm. And I'd never actually really thought about that, but absolutely, you you know, it's sort of obvious now that you've mentioned it, right? <laughs> sort of, this is like, oh, of course. So, so what's going on there and, and what kind of research do we need to do to try and figure out how we might do mm. something about that? Yeah. So the jargon phrases here are about mm. vertical inequalities, which is the access and completion issues we talked about. But there are also horizontal inequalities, which are things like you've gone to university A and therefore your degree is of more value, whether it's better or not is a different issue, but we're of more value than having gone to university B. And we can actually see that um, in the choices that they make, students from um, equity group backgrounds tend to go for the lower ranked, um, less prestigious institutions. So even the ones who make it to university are still ending up disadvantaged in some ways because they're not getting access to 
you know, the elite institutions. Is that despite that the fact that they're still fairly likely to get into the elite institutions? Yeah, so some are more than capable of getting into the elites, but for a number of different reasons. And some of it is I, I don't feel like they're the sorts of people that I would belong with. And some of it's I would like to go to the, my regional university, which is just down the road. Um, and so, you know, they end up with these horizontal inequalities as well. And then there are the sorts of decisions employers make about the institution that you've come from. And it would be really good to say that of the 40 institutions in Australia, or of the 40 universities in Australia, um, that a university degree is a university degree, but we all know that's not actually the case. So people are making these kinds of decisions. And then obviously people are making similar kinds of decisions about people as they present at interview. So if you turn up with a particular accent or looking a particular way or being a particular gender, then you get treated differently. And there's a huge amount of research on that um, from kind of the HR field. Now, what we do about that is a very tricky question because this is about society as a whole. And to this point, to some extent, universities have said, well, we've given you the paper. Now it's your problem. Uh, we can't be responsible for everything. And as far as it goes, that is actually you know, a fair response. But particularly as we move to a mass or universal education system, then the role of the university becomes a different one. Because if we have 50% of people funneling through the institutions, then that's an opportunity for education about um, you know, cultural sensitivity and that kind of thing. So I don't know that it's an easily solved question and I don't know that universities although you know they are as a group they are actually a reasonably powerful lobbying body but perhaps the more successful route is a kind of a generational one about education across society about um, you know structural inequalities and social inclusion and not being classist racist sexist that kind of thing I suppose one niggling question that I have is is how <clears throat> the Australian system differs from international systems. So uh, if we compare some of the, the things that we're trying to implement here to say the UK or the US, mm. which is you know, a whole different story, what, what does that kind of bigger picture look like? Well, a lot of, Australia is led in a lot of ways by the work from Europe and from the US. But um, as you've alluded to, the funding situation for students in the US is really different. So in a way, we're very lucky because we have something like HEX because it means that any debt that we accrue as students is not is not it's not really a debt it just is paid off from once you've got a, a particular income level and if you never reach that income level then you never have to pay it back now there are issues around hex good or good and bad but it does stop us from having a situation like you get in the US which is extraordinarily stratified by class so you have the two year community colleges which are fundamentally about reaching those lower social economic groups and then a whole different set of four-year institutions which are to a greater and lesser extent inclusive and then you have another set on top of that which are enormously selective and dis ex extremely expensive and exclude for well exclude for good reasons and exclude for very bad reasons an enormous number of people uh, but in the US, 
despite or perhaps because of all of this, they have a long body of research into student equity and social inclusion that we are building on here. So even though there are significant differences between us and the US or us and Europe, where you know there's a stronger tradition of free higher education, for example, which is changing in the UK, but there's still a lot of opportunity for us to learn from the different systems. As I said before, no one wants to reinvent the wheel and that's true between systems as well as inside them. All right, so what what are you working on? What's what's on the horizon for you? What <laughs> what are you excited about? Well, so I've just got a, a recent project looking at structural inequality and best practice models across the sector. So that's really exciting because it gives me an opportunity to talk to people about the sorts of questions you've been putting to me and make sure that I'm properly informed in a way that perhaps I'm not for this interview. Um, but more broadly, um, I've got some other research projects going, looking at how students conceive of success and whether, for example, that differs by discipline or whether it differs by you know, gender, SES, all of those other equity factors. Uh, looking at expectations and what students expect university like, what academics expect from students and how to get those groups to meet in the middle. Good luck with that. Well, and I think it's, it's the meeting in the middle that's a particularly difficult bit rather than just expecting students to come to Muhammad in the same way that they have in the past. Um, so there's an interesting argument to be had there, I think, in the future. And also looking at how students conceive of the university. So whether they come in thinking of themselves as customers or whether they think of themselves as learners and how that differs between different areas and groups and fields and so on. Because we also know that has a very profound effect on how they interact with the, the institution, the student experience, and whether they stay or go. Have, have you, so have you got any data about the different notions of what success looks like, or have you got any hunches about what that might be? That, so I find that really fascinating. I've looked at this between health science students and art students, for example, and health science students say that the most important thing to them is completing the degree. You know, I am a success. I am a success at university once I've got that piece of paper in my hand. Um, and the secondary measure is I have got good grades in my subjects. And what's interesting is that the art students don't have them in that same order. So they say I am a successful student if I'm intellectually engaged with what I'm doing, and then if I get my degree at the end of it, and then if I have um, intellectual engagements. So the health science students. Um, sorry, then if I have good grades. The health science students rank things like connections with their peers or with the institution or with experts. Am I likely to get a job at the end of this? Yeah, so they're, they're very outcome focused in a way that the art students aren't, which is a really interesting difference, um, I think, and one that potentially has like curriculum development areas. Because if 90% of your students are there just to get the piece of paper, then you are going to have different issues with engaging them and should design your curriculum in different ways than if 90% of your students think that they're not having a successful experience if they're not interested in what you're teaching. You know, those are very different markers of success. Absolutely, yeah. That, that's going to create all sorts of different ways of thinking about what you're doing. <laughs> you've got, yeah, right. And I wonder if you'd see a similar pattern across 
any discipline that is profession focused so even education you know perhaps they're wanting to you know be, be a teacher at the end of the day so i imagine you know across those sorts of fields you might see similar things that's really interesting yes it's only in its first steps now though so yeah. I'll, I'll report back when yeah. i have something more to say <laughs> sounds like an invitation for another episode <laughs> that's right. um well that's been great i think we've covered a lot of territory and um the, the one question i didn't ask you in relation to all of this um which you noticed um was golf right? <laughs> <laughs> this is my favourite question coming in. Yes and no. So unfortunately, there's a lot to unpack there. Higher or free higher education works if you have a very small number of people coming in or if people in your society are willing to pay the taxes to support it. And in the in like Germany and Scandinavia, the social agreement has been that yes, people are willing to pay taxes. In Australia, we're not. And there's a lot to sh of proof that we're not willing to pay for it. And so free education is not going to work. If we went back to having free education, then universities would cap the number of places they had available. And so all of the people who aren't traditional students would suddenly find that they weren't included again. So, no. Okay. Well, fair enough. So, <laughs> so, so the system we've got is kind of getting the balance more or less right. Uh, given... Given the kind of social constraints that we've got, yeah. then we've got a reasonable system at the moment. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Sounds like a fairly positive note to finish <laughs> on. Thank you for being on the podcast, Ryan. Thanks, Thanks for having me.